We've come to the point in our worship where we will read corporately uh, the source text for our message today. So please stand with me as we turn our Bibles to the book of Mark, chapter 14. I know I'm greatly excited and encouraged to be back in the study of Mark. We're going to be in chapter 16, and we're reading verses 53 through 65. Mark, excuse me, Mark 14, 53 through 65. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none, for many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another, not, with, not made with hands. Yet even about their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up and in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face, and to strike him, and to uh, strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. May God bless the reading of his word to your hearts. You may be seated. Courtroom drama makes for really good television. You know, whether you've actually watched the shows yourself or not, I bet if I asked you to, you could produce half a dozen names of, of television shows, of courtroom-related television shows in a matter of seconds. Piece of cake. In my previous career, I testified in courts across all of the state of Arizona. And, uh, you know, scores of times. And I can tell you that from that experience, I've made a couple of observations. Um, the first observation will probably come as no surprise, which is overwhelmingly the jury trials that take place don't have any of the drama that you see on television. Now, that said, they're not entirely devoid of showmanship. I have also experienced, personally, uh, a number of what I, I would say are, are pretty uh, bizarre antics. I certainly have had many attorneys just cut me off entirely from speaking. I had one lock eyes with me, stomp toward me, and then aggressively ask her question. Um, I've been shouted at across the room. I, at one time, remember an attorney standing on one foot, waving his arms and fla flapping his arms, waving his hands around in the air, and looking off in the distance while he asked me a question. <laughs> Which leads to my second observation, that from all of these experiences, the conclusion that I came to is that almost proportionally, as you increase the theatrics, it's an indicator of the weakness of their case. When they lacked the supporting facts, they defaulted to drama. And our account today supports that same observation. In this makeshift courtroom, of, we see an earthly high priest make a charge against the divine high priest with a crime that has virtually no evidence and in the end leads to the accuser himself tearing his clothes and shouting, what further witnesses do we need? 
You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving of death. So if we know that's where this ends, you start to ask the question, okay, how did it get this far? How is it possible to go from virtually no evidence to support any crime whatsoever to a call for the death penalty? We already know that throughout all of Jesus's um, public ministry that he was at odds with all of the religious leaders of the day. And all of the skirmishes that took place between those corrupt religious leaders and Jesus during his ministry were always where Jesus was ministering. So there he is. He's at people's homes. He is in the synagogues. And uh, wherever he is ministering, these guys show about. And where Jesus is preaching and he's teaching and he's healing people of their sicknesses, he's even casting out demons, it's the religious leaders that insert themselves into what Jesus is doing. And then all of those dust-ups took place because they're there with a critical eye. They're there to evaluate. They're there to criticize. Frankly, they're there to condemn. That's their purpose for being there at all. But everything changed once Jesus changed his physical location. So he goes from his public ministry taking place all around the region of Galilee. He travels up to Mount Hermon, and then he heads straight down to Jerusalem itself to carry out his mission. And then he ends up going to their home base where they feel comfortable, where they are at work in Jerusalem itself and even on the temple grounds. And it's after he shows up in Jerusalem, and one of the first things he does is to cleanse the temple itself. Then we see revealed at that point the real, the true point of contention. And we read it in Mark chapter 11, verses 27 and 28. This point of contention this puts a nice fine point on what really is going on between these rulers and with Jesus. And in Mark eleven twenty seven and 28, it says, And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, so there are the, the usual suspects, came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority? to do them. All of this has to do with a question of authority. And when you think back on those points of conflict that took place while Jesus was, was participating in his public ministry, when they were coming to him, and you think about where all these, uh, these points of conflict took place, when Jesus was forgiving sins, when Jesus was healing people of their sicknesses and their infirmities, when Jesus uh, expressed his view of the Sabbath, my goodness, even when Jesus was casting out demons, they were essentially asking the question, what gives you the right? By what authority do you do these things? Instead of looking at the fact that it's those very things that pointed to his authority, they were questioning the things he was doing and asking him, how dare you do these things? In other words, without their authority or by, uh, in a way that would bring their authority into question. So it's with all of that in the background that we come to our portion of Scripture today in Mark chapter 14. And we see that in verses 53 to 55, the purpose of this trial. Make no mistake, they're not, while they're not in a courtroom per se, Jesus is absolutely on trial. And it's in these verses that we learn what the trial's purpose is. What the Jewish leaders could not accomplish in the open, in Jerusalem, not even in the temple grounds themselves, which was, of course, to try to undermine his authority. What they could not accomplish in public, they wanted to try and execute now, completely in private and under cover of darkness. They're leveraging the betrayal of Judas. They laid their hands on Jesus to arrest him. 
And it's at this point in the story right here where in the parallel account in Luke 22:53 he makes the comment Jesus said when I was with you day and day after day in the temple you did not lay hands on me but this is your hour and the power of darkness So in light of that we realize that this arresting party was an extension of these corrupt religious leaders. The corrupt religious leaders were an extension of the power of darkness. In a very real sense, when we read right here in verse 53, and they led Jesus to the high priest, it's the evil one himself through his puppets that are leading, that is leading Jesus to the home of the high priest. And why wouldn't they go there? I mean, the high priest's home seems to be the, the central point where all of this plotting and all of this scheming is taking place. It's where that criminal ring met um, in, in uh, chapter 14 and verse 1, where it says the chief priests and scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth. And now we see that it's come full circle. That scheming and that plotting that took place a couple days prior to the Passover has now come all the way around, and we see that that plot that took place in his home, Judas then found them there in order to betray Jesus, and now, Je- and now with Jesus in hand, they lead him to that same location. Now we know that this home is the home of a wealthy man. It has a courtyard that uh, is large enough to accommodate enough people that even Peter thinks he's going to be able to be in the courtyard and remain unrecognized. So we know that, that this thing has to be sizable enough that he can be there. Even, it even says um, right here that he's near the guards and believes, you know, we know later that he believes and is hopeful that he's not going to be recognized. So the home has this large courtyard. We also know that the house has a second story. If you go down to verse 66, it says, And as Peter was below in the courtyard, and it goes on to describe what takes place from there. So we're at the high priest's home. He's a wealthy man. Peter is down in the courtyard, and Jesus is somewhere upstairs in a room with these leaders. And we're told in verse 53 that all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes were present maybe you've heard the term sanhedrin before that's the name of that elite high council that adjudicates all jewish law and in this comment we see another clue that the whole thing's a setup the fact that this entire council that you can get the Sanhedrin, all of them, or or as it's referred to here in verse 55, it says the whole council in the ESV, all of them managed to be present for this before the sun even rises. It's hard enough for me to get my own family together for a meal, let alone getting an entire group of leaders together to show up at a location before dawn. You know that there is significant motivation there. Why would they be that motivated? Well, think about it. They systematically were trying to humiliate Jesus in public, and they couldn't do it. In fact, exactly the opposite happened. They came at him one at a time. The Pharisees came at him trying to trick him with the uh, paying of taxes to Caesar. Then the Sadducees came at him trying to trick him, asking him about life after death. Then the scribes came at him and asked about which is the greatest commandment. Each of them took their turns at taking a shot at Jesus, and each of them walked away with the tail between their legs. So it's no question, and it's really no surprise, that all of them, the whole council, as it's put here, showed up in, what, in this prearranged time to try to prosecute Jesus. And this isn't the only thing that was predetermined. You know, the normal course of events is a crime occurs, then an arrest is made, some form of charges are then submitted 
eventually that goes to a trial and then once the trial takes place if the person is found guilty then that means that a sentencing will take place in which the sentence itself should be commensurate with the crime that had been perpetrated in this particular case we see that this is completely turned on its head so going back to mark 14 at verse 1 we see it says it was now two days before the passover and the feast of unleavened bread and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him and then where we are today in verse 55 where it says now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. They were seeking testimony to put him to death. It's evident directly from scripture that their intent from the outcome was not to try to find the truth. Their entire intent was to get to a sentence of death. They had predetermined that they wanted to see Jesus killed. So the purpose of the trial was not to seek truth. The purpose of the trial was to kill Jesus. Now this is where things get a little tricky. There are laws in the Old Testament. Remember, they're operating with the Hebrew canon. So uh, the books of the Old Testament, they've got specifically the laws that are contained within the first five uh, books, the Mosaic Law. And there are certainly laws in there on the books that allow for the death penalty. The problem is, at that particular time in history, they are under the political rule of the Roman government. The Roman government says, you can practice your religion, but you're not putting anyone to death unless we have deemed that they are worthy of capital punishment. So here you have these Jewish leaders that have already predetermined that they want to see that Jesus is killed, but they know that they are not allowed to carry out the sentence. So this becomes a bit of a sticky wicket. Somehow the high priest has got to run this thing so that it produces a crime that he can then carry from their, uh, from their back door, underhanded, in the darkness courtroom, to take it to the Roman authorities so that it might result in capital punishment. You can imagine then that accomplishing that would require a considerable amount of cunning and manipulation. The high priest, make no mistake, the high priest is no, is no fool. He's no dope. And he is manipulating this entire situation. We watch that manipulation take place when we see how the trial proceedings go. So, in a sense, it's a little bit strange that if they are this bent on seeing Jesus killed, if they're that hung up on getting him eliminated, you, I don't know, I almost think, why didn't, you know, why not hire a hitman, more or less, and just take the guy out? Don't you just want him gone? Isn't that the point? And I would say, no, they wanted something more than that. Well, they wanted a couple of things. First of all, they didn't just want him eliminated. They didn't just want him killed. They want him deposed. They want him humiliated. We're right back to that same question of authority. They want everyone else to declare him guilty. They want him to be exposed. They want him to be absolutely humiliated. And the way for them to accomplish that is to go through their legal proceedings within the Jewish Mosaic law. And at the same time, of course, they don't just want to humiliate Jesus, they want to make sure that they appear that they're in authority and that they know what they're doing and that they are in the right. So they're going to try, or at least give an appearance of trying, to follow the Mosaic law in charging him with a crime with the understanding, well, this is the outcome we have to see. So we're going to follow the process, manipulate the process, so that we get the outcome that we're looking for. 
And that's exactly what takes place in these proceedings. Old Testament law says in several places, to be able to charge someone with a crime, you must have two to three witnesses. If you cannot produce multiple witnesses to a crime, it is an illegitimate charge. There's no charge there, and certainly all the more if you are looking for the death penalty. If that's in play, there's no question. There has to be at least two to three witnesses minimum. And so by asking for these multiple witnesses, they were making a pretense of following legal procedure and, of course, of keeping the ninth commandment. Which, by the way, how providential is that, that Pastor Nick happened to talk about the ninth commandment in our reading of the law? I had no idea that's what he was going to do. Praise God, that's exactly what we're looking at here, is we have these corrupt leaders that are essentially making a mockery of God's law by trying, by making this appearance that they're following the ninth commandment, which is, you shall bear no false witness. And everything about, while at the same time, everything about the high priest's actions and the Sanhedrin that's following right along with them is an attempt to orchestrate a lie in an in an appearance to keep the ninth commandment, he's orchestrating a lie. It's almost as if he's trying to create a scenario where he can stand in front of a congregation and raise his right hand and with a straight face say, I did not lie. But God knows the secrets of the heart. Psalm 7 verse 9 says, Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end. And may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. Do you realize this? Our God knows the minds and the hearts. He knows the thoughts and the intentions. We don't. We cannot cast judgment on folks. That, that whole idea of don't cast judgment or being uh, overly judgmental has to do with the fact that we don't know the motivations behind the heart, but you better believe that God does. Nobody is getting away with a lie, no matter how manipulative they are, no matter how slick they are, no matter how many years they've gotten away with it. It's not, they're not pulling one over on our God. And of course, it's classic for corrupt, corrupt religious leaders to, see the, to fail to see the forest for the trees. That's, it, you can't help it. That's just the way that it goes. And in this case, in their effort to avoid uh, the appearance of violating this ninth commandment of not bearing false witness, they violate probably virtually all of them. But in particular, they're laying the groundwork for violating the sixth commandment. You shall not murder in trying to orchestrate this lie of appearing not to violate bearing false witness, they're putting everything in place premeditatively to violate the sixth commandment of murdering, and of course, in this case, that being the Son of God. Now, here's a little bit of irony. I love this stuff. Here's a little bit of irony about all of this, is that the legal procedure, the mosaic legal procedure that they were playing with was working. You see that? The procedure was working. Look at verse 56. So they're looking for two or three witnesses minimum, right? Well, verse 56, for many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. So if you're going by the, the, the way that God says you're supposed to do it, that should tell you right there they were unable to produce evidence of a crime, which makes this whole thing illegitimate. However, after an embarrassing string of unreliable lying witnesses, two of them managed to have enough overlap in their stories that the high priest seizes the opportunity and runs with it. Verse 57, And some stood up and bore false witness against him. So that's the way it reads in Mark. I like uh, how it's 
in the parallel account in Matthew, it reads, at last two came forward. At last two came forward. That almost seems like it's from the perspective of the high priest. Whoo, there it is, got him. At last two came forward. And then the high priest who already knew what the purpose of the trial was, was to get to the sentence that they had already been scheming. He needed to hear just enough. Just, just give me a little bit. Give me just enough of two witnesses kind of saying the same thing, and I'll take it from there. And that's exactly what he did. The charge, you got to watch how this little manipulation takes place. The charge that he latches onto is a blasphemy against the temple. Which, by the way, is not a crime. You're not going to find that in the Pentateuch is some version of blasphemy against the temple. But he's got two people that said enough together, even though they're bearing false witness, said enough that he basically is able to say, okay, I've got it from here. And he steps forward. Now, this is based on what Jesus actually said and is recorded in John chapter 2. After... Um, the cleansing of the temple, and, and they had uh, this, uh, the conflict that took place with the religious leaders there. Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. That's what he actually said. And we know, we have the benefit of the canon of Scripture, we know that he was talking about his body. It's I would even think that it's maybe understandable that they would not have recognized that. But the assumption that they did make, the hearers there, the assumption was that he was talking about the temple building. But here's the problem. So we're not saying they should have recognized that he was talking about his body. You have to watch what's happening here. The witnesses made the assumption that he was talking about the building, and then their testimony was they, they imported, they inserted their assumptions into their testimony about what Jesus said. Jesus never said he was going to build another building. Look at verse 58. This is their testimony. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another, not, with made, not made with hands. So see how they took their assumptions and then said, tried to quote him as saying that. And he never said that. Jesus never said he was going to build another temple. But of course, high priest, he took what he could get. And lacking any legitimate evidence to support a charge, what did he do? Remember my observation. He defaulted to drama. Verses 60, starting at verse 60. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. You realize, do you recognize right there, there was no charge. I told you that what he latched on to is this concept of blasphemy against the temple. But he never specified a charge. He heard two witnesses apparently say enough in common that he decides, okay, that's good enough. I got this. And instead of lining out the evidence, instead of saying, here is what you're charged with, instead of there being some sort of a, you know, even a verbal discovery of sense. Instead, all he does is he defaults to being incredulous. He acts shocked. What do you say for yourself? What are you going to do about this? So, what does Jesus do? He remains silent. Says nothing at all. Now, it's absolutely true, hopefully, if you have some familiarity with the verse from Isaiah 53, verses 6 and 7, there is no question here that 
Jesus is fulfilling what is prophesied in Isaiah 53, verses 6 and 7, which reads, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, which is clearly what we're seeing here. And yet he opened not his mouth. And like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is uh, a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So there's no question that that is exactly what Jesus is doing here. He remains silent at this particular point in fulfilling this prophecy. But I would add to this, in addition to keeping this prophecy, is that there was nothing to say. I I can tell you again that one of the tactics that I've experienced nowhere to this degree, of course, is this idea of some uh, of an attorney, le- you know, making a statement, but they're not being a question and then just stopping and hoping that the pause, that the silence will add enough pressure to get you to say something. As opposed to then saying, well, do you have a question? And in this particular case, I think that's what we're seeing to an exponential degree. We see this incredulous response by the high priest toward Jesus in an attempt to put him on the spot, and Jesus doesn't crack. He sits there silently. I would say he's even exercising the wisdom of Proverbs 26.4. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Jesus wasn't going to go down the stupidity, you know, chase down the stupidity of this inconsistent false testimony that results in a charge that's no charge? Like, what, how, how do you win that? I mean, if anybody could do it, it would be Jesus, but he doesn't. Like, it's just, it's, it, it would be foolish. So he's, main, he's keeping, the, he's fulfilling this prophecy out of Isaiah, and he's not debasing himself by responding, or for that matter, giving credence to this show of drama that the high priest is demonstrating in front of everyone. At this point now, it just is the high priest making a fool of himself because Jesus just doesn't bite. But everything changes after this. The high priest makes a very serious misstep. It's a calculated risk that he takes, and it fails miserably. And it leads to the trial's pronouncements. Remember that he needs to elicit a charge. So he's still in that scenario. He's, he needs to elicit a charge from this, from these proceedings that's going to result in something that he can hand off to the Roman government that can then be used to result in the death penalty. That's always in view for him. That's what he's trying to get to. And he's managed to produce an accusation that is definitely going to ignite the Jews. We see that response later, telling him to prophesy. And then actually, I believe in chapter 15 as well, um, when Jesus is hanging on the cross, they do it again. They, they yell at him about, hey, why don't you bring yourself down and rebuild, uh, rebuild the temple? So the high priest is successful in igniting that kind of Um, Jewish anger, all of that. But that's not going to get Jesus the death penalty for the Jews. I'm sorry, for the uh, Romans in their eyes. So he has to do something. He has to take, he has has to go for it. And he does that. And in keeping with these courtroom theatrics, he shoots the moon. Contemptuously, mockingly, hoping again to pressure Jesus into an answer. Now, he says, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? So this question, among other things, reveals that the high priest is no fool. Now, he may not have known that Jesus, when he said, destroy this temple and in three days, I'll raise it up again. He may not have understood that Jesus was talking about his own body. 
But bear in mind, if he's the high priest, that means he came up steeped in education of the Mosaic law and of Jewish tradition and of the understanding of the Hebrew canon. This means he is a highly educated man. And so what he's doing here is he's trying to take the charge that he has to work with regarding the temple and to manipulate it in a way that he can get Jesus to acknowledge that he has the authority to take the temple down. Now, we already know that this whole thing hinges, that their antipathy toward him, that their hatred for him has to do with authority. We already know that that's the case. So he has calculated at this point that if he asks this question, and if he can get Jesus to acknowledge that he has the authority to do that to the temple, then that assumes within Jewish understanding, you, you can say within biblical understanding, therefore, that he is the king of the Jews. You see how this stuff kind of lines up for him as long as he um, puts it all together in the right way. So essentially, he took the lie that the patsy witnesses offered up and turned it into a question of divine authority. Well played. Well played, high priest. But now we have a question posed to Jesus that's not at all like the first. Now it's a straightforward question posed to Jesus about his divinity. This isn't something you've got to chase down that has no, that's based on lie and has no uh, eventual uh, landing spot. This is why Jesus chooses not to be silent here. This is incredible. Now Jesus proclaims the gospel to the Sanhedrin. This is what it sounds like when you proclaim the gospel to people you know are destined for judgment. We don't get that opportunity. Jesus knows that. And so what does he say to the question that is posed by the corrupt religious leaders that say, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? His answer is, I am. Now, you know what's going on there. Yes, for sure, in one sense, he is saying I am as an assent, as an affirmation to the question itself. It's a yes or no question, and the answer is unequivocally yes, but he doesn't say it that way. He says, I am, and he means absolutely all of the baggage that that carries with it and is communicating the very same thing that Yahweh was telling Moses when he asked, what do I say when they ask who sent me to you? What is his name? God said to Moses, I am who I am. Say to the people of Israel, I am has sent you. That same I am, that Yahweh was sitting right in front of them and saying, yeah, I am. And what's more, Jesus pronounces as well, that he is the son of man. And they would know, guaranteed, they would know, these religious leaders would know that when he said he is the son of man that is coming with the clouds of heaven, that, that he was referring to the son of man from Daniel 7, he says right there that will be seated at the right hand of power. Now bear in mind, what Jesus is communicating to them. He is laying out the gospel, but he's given them a little extra, which is when they see him again, this is not a post-resurrection Jesus. This is not like a, a road to Emmaus, a doubting Thomas, put your hand in my side space of time after the resurrection that we're talking about. When he uses verbiage of of you will see me. Uh, and he says, uh, let me find, let me find the verse here. In 61, after he gets the question, then 62, Jesus said, I am, and you will see 
the Son of Man, seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. How would they see him? Because Jesus is talking about the second coming. He is talking about the full consummation of creation. He is talking about the new heaven and the new earth, Jesus, that they're going to see. I think a better way to think about it is that they're going to see the day of judgment, son of man. This is the Psalm 110, Jesus. From Psalm 110, at verse 1 it says, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That's the right hand of power he's talking about. And then in verses 5 to 7, it reads, The Lord is at your right hand. What is he going to do? He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. This is the Son of Man that will return on the clouds of heaven that are going to be at the right hand of power. That's when they will see him, when every knee will bow and when every tongue confess that he is Lord. John chapter 5 says, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. That's who he is, he is telling them that he is. The only audience in the room is the high priest and the Sanhedrin. This kangaroo court held in a private location under the cover of darkness presumes to cast judgment on the one who will judge every word, every deed, and every motive of the heart in the light of day. Unbelievable. And get this, in being slaves to sin themselves, in being children of the devil, puppets for his purposes, minions to the evil one, the high priest thinks he just won. He thinks he won. He got him to say what he wanted. He manipulated the situation to get Jesus to lay claim to divinity. Which means he can make the legal argument that he's king of the Jews. He had that little baby in his back pocket. That's what I was looking for. Right there. By you saying that, I get to make the argument from a Jewish perspective that you're the king of the Jews, but now I'm going to take this Jewish religious perspective of the fact that that makes you king of the Jews, which of course is not a physical kingdom, but I can take that and pull it out of any context whatsoever and carry that to the Roman government. Boom, got him. And in that way, he believes he can accomplish the trial's purpose of a death sentence. Now, hopefully you're seeing this pattern to cover up for his lack of actual evidence for this little bait and switch that he just pulled off. What does he resort to? Courtroom theatrics. Only he ramps it up. Verses 63 to 65. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? The whole council heard exactly what they wanted to hear and pronounced the sentence they wanted to carry out. They, too, did not have the evidence sufficient to support the charge and certainly not sufficient to support the sentence that they produced. So what did they do? They, too, resorted to courtroom drama with a capital D. 
They spit on him. They struck him. They mocked him. Of course they did. They had no case. You really can't do anything else. Now, I already mentioned it before. I, I, you know, I, I love clever. I love wit. I love irony. And I have to tell you, it, it has become one of the greatest pleasures I have in studying the Bible to, to, to find these things and to realize the, the layers and the complexity and the way God is working in all of this. There is no other book that has more of those things in it. Consider this. Jesus himself already said that this hour is the hour of the power of darkness. If ever there was a time in which the evil one is winning, it's right here, right? I mean, he said it himself. It's the hour of the power of darkness. They did arrest him. They did take him to the high priest's home. They did produce a couple of these witnesses. They did pronounce him guilty and saying that he was deserving of death and is already enduring a humiliating beating. Surely the evil one is winning right here, right? Well, the, the adversary used corrupt religious leaders to destroy Jesus, Jesus, and to accomplish that, the leaders elicited lies from worthless men to twist Jesus' words. And look at this. In their evil intent to prosecute Jesus using lying witnesses for something they misunderstood, they carried out exactly what Jesus actually said and really did mean when he said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. <laughs> Unbelievable. Add to this, of course, the fact that the temple itself is also going to be destroyed. By the way, that's going to happen. So I would just close by saying that from this courtroom showdown, we know with certainty that Jesus, the Son of Man, will return with the clouds of heaven. Every one of us will see him. Every one of us, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And at that time, those that have repented of their sin and placed their faith exclusively in the life, death, resurrection, the work of Jesus Christ will be subject or will enter into everlasting life. And those who have refused to repent, that have refused to rely on the work of Christ, will be judged and subject to eternal damnation. If you have not repented and believed, you are no different than those guys in that room before dawn that said he was deserving of death, that spit on him, that struck him, and that mocked him. Brothers and sisters, are you listening to Jesus' pronouncement? Even when Jesus himself said, that this is the hour of the power of darkness. God was at work in his greater plan. You believe that. You know that to be true. You are experiencing the goodness, the graciousness, the mercy of God because of what Jesus accomplished. So you have a clear view of what was taking place at that time. You can hear this message and know in your heart, in your very soul, in your spirit, yes, that absolutely is true. Well, do you apply that same truth to the difficulties of your own life? Do you think that what's going on in your life is less orchestrated than what was taking place in Jesus's life in that room at that time under that kind of pressure? Of course not. There's no less intent behind God. He's not asleep at the wheel in your case when he knew exactly what was going on in that case. Do you believe it? And for the Jew, the worst conceivable event was the destruction of the temple. Like that just, I will even go so far as to say, even for the believing Jew, 
Like, I'm not lumping that in just exclusively to these corrupt religious leaders. Let's just say the Jew to see that the whole idea of the temple being destroyed, because at this point, this is on the other side of exile and the temple being rebuilt and all of that. So the whole idea of the temple being destroyed was like the worst conceivable outcome. You know better. You know, if you are a Christian, you know that Jesus himself is the new sanctuary. And so I ask you this question. Is your life organized around the physical manifestation of God's goodness? Or is it organized around our good God himself? What is the content of your prayer? There's nothing wrong with asking God for relief, for help. But it is always not my will, but your will be done. Is your perspective one that says, I trust in what God is doing, even in the difficulty that I'm currently in. I trust him. I believe it. Or are you more concerned about the actual good things, which are good things. The temple was a good thing for the purpose that it served. Is your hope in that thing that he gives you, health, finances, amusement, family relationships, education, the list goes on, promotions. Is your hope built on what God is producing for you? And you're like, yes, I'm thankful for those things. Well, that's great. But do you live a life that has your focus exclusively on God himself? Do they drive you to God, or are you going to God so that he might give you something better to drive? Evaluate your heart, evaluate your prayers, and may he help all of us take comfort in knowing that he is in, that he's, that he's at the wheel. He's got it under full control. Let's close. Dear Lord, thank you so much. When we see these things, seeing the, the wit, the irony, the, <laughs> the misdirection that is given to the evil one so that you can accomplish your purpose, and yet you know, the evil people are doing exactly what they want to do, and yet your, your perfect will is superseding and is above that. It's not just, it doesn't just make us smile because you're smarter. Uh, Lord, we're grateful because of who you are and what you're accomplishing. Lord, help us to always keep that in view. Help us to view everything else in life under the greater perspective of you, your goodness, and what you're doing in our lives that brings glory first to you, yet knowing that you still do it for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.